So before I ask you to rise as we read God's Word together, just a little bit of a history on uh, this particular sermon this morning. Um, it's one that I have preached in some iteration or another a number of times. And I believe, and I could be wrong about this, and you can go back and look and research if you want, but I believe this is the first sermon I preached here also, I think. Um, so I thought it was good and right to bookend with the same thing. Not every word is exactly the same as it was then. Um, not every word this morning is the same as I've preached this sermon in other times and other places. But it's a good reminder of who we are and who Jesus is. And so my prayer for me and for us this morning as we gather here together one last time is that you don't see Ryan, but rather the Holy Spirit would carry his word to you, that he would use my words to grow you and to edify you, and that they would be implanted into your hearts and your lives, not because I say them or how well or how poorly I do this morning, but rather and only and always that the Lord God Almighty will make you more like Christ because of his word. So if you're able, please rise as you read God's word together from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, and as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, take your words to these people here. Mold and shape their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Look around. Look around this room. Look around this world. What do you see? What do you see? We see wars. We see injustices. We see fires devastating our neighbors to the north, our neighbors to the west. Look around. What do you see? I look around the world and I see terms and images that were once used for good are now used for evil. 
I see fundamental truths being abused and misappropriated. What do you see? Look around our churches. Look around our families. For many of us, it often feels like things are hanging on by the thinnest of threads, perhaps even falling apart. Marriages struggle. Too many are on the brink. Families war. Too many are hardened. Families split and are fractured. Relationships destroyed. Everywhere we turn these days, it seems as one thing again is falling apart. Where do we turn? Where do we go for some, some kind of stability, any kind of stability? Where is hope to be found? Where can I turn in a time of sadness or distress or frailty or brokenness or the fact that I am the one that's hanging on just by the thinnest of threads? Where do we turn when health fades? When my eyes don't work so well, when my legs don't work so well, when my memory doesn't work so well? Where do we turn when assumptions fade into things unrecognizable? Where do we turn when bad news comes? And doesn't it seem like bad news is coming all that more frequently these days? As I look around my world, I see Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, often turning to despair. I see people questioning if somehow has the Lord let things slip through his fingertips? Has he, has he just let it go away? Is slide into the depths of depravity? I hear phrases like, the world was so much better then, and if only, if only it was like it was before, and I wish things were like they were 10, 15 years ago, or maybe even last week. We long for things gone by. Has the Lord forgotten about us? Is the Lord with us? Does He care? These are the things I hear a lot. And I wonder if that's then how many of us feel every day. And so this then is where we enter into our text. And where our text this morning speaks into that very situation. Or where do we turn just to pin it down into today, where do we turn in transition? Where do we go? Do we put our hopes on the next guy that takes my place? Do we pin our hopes on the interim pastor or a number of guys who are going to be preaching and filling in? And do we put our hopes in the presbytery that they would do the right thing? Or where do we turn next Sunday? Who's going to be here? I know the answer, but that's whatever. (laughs) But where do we go? Where do we turn? Because for right here, right now, at Redeemer Arlington Church, that's the question, isn't it? Whatever you're dealing with, whatever struggle, whatever frustration, whatever excitement, whatever exuberance, whatever sin temptation, whatever 
Sin pattern? That's the question that's before us this morning. Next week is next week, and it's different. Where do we go? Where do we turn? Where's our hope? And so 1 Peter 2 speaks very loudly. This text then tells us what we indeed have. And what we have is hope. We have hope when we think things are spinning wildly out of control. We have hope when our families are on the brink, when our marriages are on the brink. And yes, we have hope for next week's Sunday. And we have hope for the Sundays that follow. And we have hope in a cornerstone. That's what First Peter 2 is all about. And if you could hear anything else or not listen to anything more that I have to say in this message, that's what it's about, is that we do have hope. So let us then take a look together at what that hope is, is we have hope in a solid foundation. And in verse 4, we are immediately confronted with an image of a living stone. This is a powerful image, isn't it? A powerful image of, of something that makes perfect and good sense if we think about it. But at first blush, we have to be honest. Last time I picked up a rock, it wasn't alive. But here, we're being told that we have a living stone. And before we get into this imagery too much and what it means for Jesus to be that cornerstone, that living stone, we need to look at the first few words of verse 4, as you come to him. There are two things that I want to point out to us in this introductory statement. The first is the word come. Now, we just have, we have a, a new puppy in our house, and sometimes he listens to us, and sometimes he doesn't listen to us. But it's a good thing he's really, really cute, or otherwise it would be bad. But we're trying very much to teach him to come, right? And so when you say, Toby, come, we fully expect Toby in that moment to come as he's called. But we don't expect him to do that repeatedly just on his own volition, do we? But when we say, Toby, come, it's a one-time event. Dog, get over here now, right? That's what we're expecting the dog to do. But as we read this, if we just say and we think in those terms, which in our English vernacular, in our English language, that's often how we think of this term, come, is kind of a one action. I'm going to come to your house this afternoon, or I'm going to go out to dinner with you next week, Friday. It's a one-time event. But here, in the original language, it's actually something that is ongoing. We say coming... But that doesn't even give it the full sense of what the, what, the, what the Greek language is even communicating to us. In this sense, as we come, it really, the thrust is, yes, like a dog comes once, we do, but we also, all the time, continually enter into the presence of the Lord. So as we're always coming to the Lord, as we're always going, it's not a single incidence but it's a continual relationship. He desires this relationship with us, and we therefore then keep returning over and over and over again, and he further strengthens us more and more and more, and he grows us into his likeness more and more and more. The second thing that we need to see is the word you. 
Now, I've used this, and actually I stole it from some professors in seminary because I didn't live in the South a number of years ago, and they would always say, hey, our Southern friends have this word, you, right, right? It's, it's a plural you, like, like y'all, right? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one little more tag on that and say, well, yeah, that's kind of what it is, right? But even as I've lived now in the South for seven years or so, I've even come to deter- the realization that y'all doesn't even mean y'all. Y'all could just mean you or you. You see, y'all, come on, y'all, y'all. But it also could mean more. But I think we also have a phrase in, at least in Texas, I don't know about the rest of the South, but one that I've come to understand, and even at Martin High School, where three of my boys are alums, they sell T-shirts that say, Martin versus, have you seen these shirts? Y'all? No, 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 no. It says, Martin versus all y'all. Right? So there's a difference between y'all and all y'all. Right? So even our southern, see, even my friends here, you all in the south, right? It's more this word here. So what's it saying to all y'all? It's saying, as all y'all continue to come. And so it's not just for an individual, hey, you come or y'all come. It's for everybody. This is a, a community aspect of everybody coming. We don't do this just on our own. We don't set on our own path and make our own blazed trail. We do this as a body of Christ. All y'all, as all y'all always come to the Lord. This is the deep theological expression of the South. This community, this togetherness, this unity, That's what's going on here immediately in verse 4. And so then as all y'all continue to come, we move forward into verse 4, and we say, as all y'all come to a living stone. And again, at at first blush, like that, stones aren't alive. They're dead. They're, They're cold and they're hard. But then it's also an interesting little nugget. Here's a, here's a free theological or expositional nugget for you, just free of charge. If you remember Peter's name, Petros, just carry it down, right? Right? So it's rock. His name is rock in the Greek. And here is this saying, not me. It's not me. You're coming to a living Petros, to the rock. A rock that refers to Jesus as a living stone. And this word stone in this instance has much more weight than what we would tend to place upon the stones that we just pick up on the street here or the kind that we find in our gardens or whatever it may be. It does not simply refer to even the stones that in the Middle East are everywhere. They're big and they're jagged, they're small and they're rough, but the stones are everywhere. So it's not even so much more that as it is something else, but rather a precious stone. It refers to a stone that has been fashioned and and worked on and, and carefully selected in order that it could set the tone for a building, for a people. You see, if the stone or the cornerstone is referenced in verse 6, which is almost identical, quote of Isaiah 28, 16. And this is what that says. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, this this is not 1 Peter. This is Isaiah. See, I lay a stone in Zion, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Where's our hope? Where's our stability? It's in the living stone of Jesus. And Isaiah and Peter both tell us that if we rely on this stone, on this Jesus, this Savior who has given everything to you, his life, his flesh, his blood, his entirety of his being, his identity, he's given this to you, we will never be stricken with panic. And yet, we established already that we do panic. And we're afraid. And we wonder, where are we going? Where are we headed? How do, how, what's tomorrow? What's, what's next week's Sunday going to look like? What's three weeks from Sunday going to look like? But here, Isaiah and First Peter says, fall onto the living stone that is Jesus Christ, and you will never be stricken with panic because he is the sure foundation, the solid rock. And if there's a rock that's not square or not positioned just right, the whole building is out of whack. And we know that Jesus is this perfect stone, a precious stone, a chosen stone, just for that purpose. There now is a juxtaposition, a contrast of thoughts that takes place between rejection and acceptance if we look at these word, if we look at these verses this stone the one who is fashioned for the purpose of anchoring this building was rejected not not good enough not straight enough not square enough not good enough we reject it it's rejected by men and of course here the word man is not specific but rather to all of humanity Humanity has rejected this stone. Verses 7 and 8 help us to understand a little bit more of what this means, that men have rejected this living stone. When we reject him, he's not a stone that offers stability, but rather something else, but rather the stone causes stumbling and offense. In contrast, this cornerstone is accepted and considered precious by God. You see, the Lord God has shaped him has fashioned this stone with care and chosen him as the one who gives the building form and structure and identity. Even though God, the creator of the universe, has chosen Jesus as the one to be the cornerstone, the Messiah, we still panic. We still wonder. We still are afraid. And we still doubt. We reject it. Not good enough. Not straight enough. Not precious enough. I'm straight enough. I'm perfect. I'm precious. My ways are better. I'm a cornerstone. This in our sin, in our doubt, in our fear, is what we're saying to the Lord God Almighty. Jesus, you're not good enough. I'm going to build my own house. I'm going to make my own path. And then we start to panic. You see, the beginning of the text in verse 4 states that we are to continually come to Jesus. We are to have the posture that it's an ongoing pursuit of our Savior. To be more like Him. To follow in His footsteps and grow in our love for Him. 
You see, this is our hope. It's all we've got. He is all we have to give us our strength, our identity, our future, to make our path straight. This is our hope. And we're to follow in His footsteps and grow in our love for Him. But something then, if we are doing that well, and we do indeed indeed rely on Him and put our hope and our trust in that cornerstone, we also have to be aware of something that will happen to us. It's not an if, but rather a when. Did you catch that? If we fall onto this cornerstone, if this is our only hope, and we also know that this cornerstone is rejected, the world rejects Him, but if that's our identity, and the world rejects that identity... And logic would say, what, and this is what Peter's saying to us, we are also to be rejected. Life's not going to always be rainbows and butterflies, as they say. Just because you're a Christian and claim to be a follower of Jesus does not mean that all the troubles are now gone away and everything's going to be great. We all know that. We just lived the last six days and not everything was perfect and wonderful and right, was it? We argued. We had bad days. We didn't sleep very well. As a matter of fact, the troubles just might increase when we become a follower of Christ. For if Jesus was rejected, so too will we be rejected. The world is going to ridicule and mock us for believing in a fairy tale, a nice story about a good guy. The way that we act and the way in which we treat one another then should be different. It should be different because this cornerstone is different. Our identity is different than the world's. But here's the thing. The way that we treat and love one another, the way that we're unified with one another, the way that we're unified in Jesus Christ makes the difference. Because if we fight with one another, we're saying, Jesus, you're not good enough. Or we're going to make our own path. We're going to make our own building that's better and, and more stable. We, we, we just go about our own separate ways. The way we love our neighbors should be different. The way we treat the people in the city should be different. Because Jesus treats them with love and care and compassion just as he does us. And so we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to be lights in this place, in this city. And light exposes things. Things are exposed in the light that people do not want to have exposed. Problems are discussed and conflicts dealt with. It's not hiding behind facades. It's it's not trying to be nice all the time. Sometimes we just have to deal with hurts and pains because we love one another and because we're unified on this precious cornerstone. Friends, the gospel is true. And if the gospel is true and grace is given to you, there's no need to fear. There's no need to doubt. For the grace of God is given to us in this cornerstone. And it is a precious stone, a solid stone. And it will bring us into communion with him. And so then as we move closer to Jesus, the the world rejects us more, but we become more like him. And this is Why then we have this hope in our cornerstone? We have a hope in the cornerstone because not only has Jesus been chosen, but what? Did you catch that? We too have been chosen as precious. 
You matter. You matter to each other. You matter to Jesus. We are his people. And when the Spirit calls us into the body of Christ, we are fashioned in the likeness of the cornerstone. We are chiseled and we are formed to fit against it and with it and supported by this cornerstone. No longer are we the way of the world that is biting and fighting and trying to get one up and make sure that my point is right and my argument is correct. No, it's a sacrifice and service and and, and love and and unity with one another because this is what Jesus has done for us. He's given everything, including his life, including dying on the cross. We then, because of that sacrifice, are empowered to love one another and our neighbors. And we have this hope because Jesus has been chosen and he has chosen us. And we are precious in the eyes of God. And because now we're precious in the eyes of God, we are being formed into something. Peter provides, proceeds to provide another image in verses 5 and 6, if you turn there. With Jesus as the living cornerstone or the foundation of the building, we are being formed into a building, a temple. With him as the chosen and precious stone that this building is fashioned around. But in order to fully realize the impact of this image, we we have to travel back in time. And I know I've done this many times from this pulpit, but get in your time machines and whirl back in time and pretend that you're going back into the Old Testament, back into the wilderness, back into those days, if you recall with me. And remember the nation of Israel, and as they were wandering around after they'd been taken up out of the land of Egypt, the nation was... In, was waiting for the promised land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And God promised Abraham and Moses that he would be the God of the people and that he would be present with them. In a very real way, he wanted to be among his people. And so he determined to do just that. But the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the character of God would not allow him to be among his people in the way that he so desperately desired. So what did God do? He set up a way where that could happen. He told the leaders of the nation of Israel to make a tent, a really nice tent, a special tent. And he tells them, put it right in the middle of the camp, right smack in the middle of camp so that everybody would be able to see it. And so now the people have got, well, ah, God literally is living right next door to me. He lives in the tent right next door. This holy and righteous God, the one that shook Mount Sinai, the one that parted the sea, the one that defeated Pharaoh and and the army, he now lives next door. Oh my. So now, again, imagine that you're an Israelite in the wilderness and you've just witnessed God do all these amazing things and now he's living in the tent next door. What do you do? The people must have been in shock. They must have also been in awe that this is who this God is. The people must have taken Leviticus in a much different manner, the the book of than what we do. So when we read Leviticus, the the place that, and even in Exodus, when talks about building this tent, this tabernacle, it was a place that was able to be moved around with the people where God could constantly be in the presence of his people. 
But then we understand that, and now they're moving forward in history. So they're no longer wandering around, but they've established themselves in Jerusalem. And there's this guy named Solomon. Maybe you've heard of him. Solomon was charged not with building a tent, but rather building what? A temple. A really cool temple. So that God would be able to live permanently in the house next door. So in 1 Kings 6 and 7, we read of the immensity of this temple. We read its beauty and its majesty. The size of the temple was enormous, and the, and the grandeur, was, grandeur was worthy of a holy God, carefully constructed with order and craftsmanship. Scripture gives us the dimensions of this temple. It tells us, like the tabernacle, where things were to be placed and, and how it was that God was going to be present with them. And this temple was an architectural marvel that people from all over the known world would come to. But there were things that were built there that never were built before. This place was absolutely amazing. Why? Because Yahweh lived there and was worthy of it. So then what does this all have to do with 1 Peter chapter 2, all of this tabernacle and temple stuff? Peter knows his audience. He knows that a majority of the people were Jewish Christians who know the stories of the tabernacle and the temple well. He knows that they view the instructions of Exodus of the tabernacle and Leviticus and the tabernacle and these other things of the temple as a wonderful way to describe how it is that God is living in their midst. He knows that they understood the meaning of the grandeur of the tabernacle and the temple. And they also understood that each one of these stones of the temple was set apart for the construction of God's house. And he now proceeds to tell the people that Jesus is the living cornerstone of that temple. And then he says, each one of you are just like those stones that built the temple. And what is that temple? A place where Yahweh resides a place where the holy God of the universe resides. You see, that makes you and them special. There's not one that's out of place. There's not one that's out of order. There is order and beauty and magnificence to this temple. We then are the precious works in the hands of the creator of the universe. We are all part of a larger building, this new temple, a spiritual house with living stones that have gone before us, underneath us, and around us, and after us. And Jesus is that cornerstone. Friends, this is our calling, to be a part of that temple, a place where Yahweh calls home, where God Almighty, who by the power of his voice creates the universe, he now says, I make my home with all y'all, and you are precious in my sight, and you are mine. So then this is a message of hope. When we feel alone, when we feel like everything seems to be falling apart, it's a, it's a message of hope that we, when we face the difficulties in our own lives, we know that God's chosen you and you and y'all and all y'all to be a part of his temple, his family, his house. There was no surprise or question on God's part while he's building this temple. He has, before the foundation of time, chosen us at this particular place, at this particular time, to be a part of his house, his kingdom. And he resides therein. And this is our hope. We've been called by the Lord out of darkness. 
out of the chaos, out of the hurt, out of the falling apart, and out of the instability, and brought into the beauty of a community. And it's this image of a community that gives us hope as well. We are not alone. We together, all y'all, are molded into the people of God. And again, the idea of being precious and chosen and holy is given to each one of us. There's no accident here. It's not some arbitrary cutting of the herd. This is done with and through divine choice. Imagine with me and hear the words again and just contemplate the depth and the height. God has chosen you to be a part of his temple. He's chosen you as individuals and he's chosen you as a body of people to be a part of his temple. He has chosen you. And there's much here that we can get into, but we simply don't have all the time in the world. But I want to explore just a a bit here in, in the part of the next parts of this text that contrasts again and then enter into what it means for us this morning. Peter, once again, is going back to his knowledge of the Old Testament and and directly pulling from Exodus 19. The people were at the base of Mount Sinai waiting for instructions from the Lord as to what to do next. They had just been redeemed from Egypt and waiting for this new land that they were promised. And God is telling Moses what he needs to tell the people. And Moses telling us, telling them, this new nation needs to recognize who brought them out of Egypt and into this particular wilderness. They were to recognize his power over Egypt and they, he reached down and conquered these armies and the Pharaoh. He didn't choose the Amorites. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He chose these people. He called these people to himself. They are precious to him. And they now have a new identity. They are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and they will be God's people. Here's the contrast I think they saw, and then we can draw some conclusions from that as well. Peter says to this audience that the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel was once in darkness in the land of Egypt. They were in slavery, literally in chains. They were not a nation. They had no identity. They had no value. They had no worth. All they are was people to make bricks. See where Peter's going with this. They were in darkness with no identity, to make bricks. The oppression was more than they could take. There was no mercy. But God, but God intervened. He entered into the lives of his people and he rescued them from the land of slavery, out of their chains, out of darkness, out of making bricks, 
and he brought them to himself and he gave them an identity and he gave them mercy and he gave them forgiveness and he says, you are a precious brick in my life and in my kingdom, in my house. This is who you are today. You are no longer that. You are no longer in darkness, but now you are in the light because of what he has done for us. And so to us, in our sin and in our misery and our brokenness, we too were in the sin and the slavery and the chains of our misery and brokenness. And through Jesus and what he's accomplished for us, he reaches into that darkness, into the instability, into the fear, into the doubt. And he says, no, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to rise from the dead for you and give you everything that I have and give you an identity which is that we are his. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been shown mercy. And more than that, we are also called the people of God. We are his chosen people. So when things seem like they're crashing all around, when you're wondering where we are in a month Six months, here's your hope. We have a living cornerstone. This is a message of hope. We are a community that God has chosen to be his own people. We are connected together, fashioned in just the right way that we all fit together, where Jesus is the sure foundation. If it was not for this cornerstone, the entire building would collapse all around us. But we have him. This is a message of hope. That when all the world doesn't seem right, we've been called precious. And we're built together as a family, exactly the way God wants us to be. So this is when we turn. This is where we go. We go to 1 Peter 2 that shows us Jesus Christ. We turn to a hope that we have in Christ. No matter the situation, no matter what it looks like next week or in six weeks, the problems may not disappear. They might get worse. They might get better. But Jesus is our sure foundation. We know that we are fashioned to the solid foundation of the cornerstone. And so hear the words of the Lord once again. This is what the sovereign Lord says to you this morning. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Friends, this is our hope. This is your hope. Jesus is our hope and solid foundation. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, we give you thanks and praise, and we are humbled, and we marvel at the fact that you have indeed laid a precious cornerstone in Zion, 
And you have called us as your people. Called us and given us mercy and grace. And so, Lord, as we now prepare to come to this table, may you show us, may you fill us, may you nourish us with your grace, with yourself that we find in the bread and the cup of this table. So, Lord, go before these people. Go before these beloved friends. Make their path straight. May they fall on the cornerstone of their Savior. I pray this in the strong name of our precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Amen.